Welcome to the Backyard Professor live videos. Sunday evening, it is, what date? September 25th, 2022. Wow. Incredible how fast this year is going. So I want to begin by saying, first off, thank you for all of your kind words, comments, ideas, disagreements, <clears throat> agreements, uh, analysis, etc. I'm going through a lot of material on, well, religion, philosophy, science, etc., Mormonism, Mormon history, etc., and that's just how, hey, Tim Rathbone, good to see you, my friend. Yes, sir. Uh, so I've been going through, I've been kicking out quite a few videos on several different subjects, and tonight is going to be no different. Um, I have discovered why I truly do love Stephen L. Peck in his book, Evolving Faith, because this guy is not a typical Mormon, and I hope he doesn't get in trouble for me saying that by the brethren, but we shall see. Okay, let's say hi to everybody. Mo, see ya. Good to see ya. Alyssa, Alisa. Hey, I caught myself. Wendy Rowland, good to see you. Mark Crespin, yeah, baby. <laughs> Just for you, Mark. Man, you're fortunate. You're spoiled rotten, right? And Michael Brandon and uh, Nathan Crouch. Good to see all you people. Very good, very good. I have a good lineup tonight in discussing this gentleman, Stephen L. Peck, who is not your typical Mormon, and it's finally good to find someone who does not fit the stereotype, really, truly. Uh, I'm, I'm just, I'm very excited to share some ideas with him as the small crowd of three come rushing into the auditorium. Hey, Barbara Westhoff, good to see you. Oh, you've retracted your message. I didn't even get to read it yet. Where do I buy my books at? Uh, the company name and websites, please. Good question. Uh, most of them are online. Unfortunately, uh, I do like Barnes & Noble. Uh, however, because of the changing economic situations, they've had to resort more to selling toys. So most of my stuff is online nowadays. Um, realistically, the, the harder to get books like this one, the Search for Harmony, and this is edited by Gene A. Sessions and Craig J. Oberg, which I have been using in this series of podcasts. This one will be found online. Uh, Algis Uzdavnis, the most, one of the most important philosophers I have ever read. Uh, philosophy is a rite of rebirth. A lot of his materials are going to be easier to find online. Orpheus and the Roots of Platonism, etc., that would be online. This one, Evolving Faith, you might be able to get in Deseret Book. I don't know if they're that intellectual just yet, but uh, the one you really ought to get that could be online truly is this one I talked about this morning. We have no idea. This is a contextualizer without question for both science and religion. I love this book because it's down to earth real. It tells the scientists to stop faking like we know so damn much. And it tells the religionists, stop faking like we know so damn much. I love this book. This is a very critical book to give us a context. So, yeah, mostly online. So, anyway, let's see who else is here real quick. Hey, come, Mother of Pearl. 
See Mother of Pearl. All right. Yes, you made it. Congratulations. Welcome. Doug Vincent. Welcome, my friend. Gail Casperson or Capson. I apologize. I'm trying to see this. I don't know why this chat prints this stuff so small, but us old-eyed people can't read it very well. So please never be offended if I mispronounce your names. I certainly do not mean any offense. Hey, JB, maybe. Hello, New York City here. Great. Awesome. Okay, great. Okay, let's let's jump on this because I've got a lot of information to share on the issue of science versus Mormonism. Now, understand, make no mistake about this. Let's be crystal clear right at the front so you don't feel like I'm going to deceive you tonight. I am a presenter of ideas. This is the role I envision that I am in. So what I love to do is study ideas. I mean, look behind me for the love of Sam Walton. I used to work for him. I can take his name in vain. He was the founder of Walmart, yes. So, but I mean, seriously, I don't read all these books just to let them sit on that shelf, right? Now, none of these books all agree with each other either. So my idea is that I am presenting from other better, more skilled, knowledgeable authors are to present the astonishing marvel of the human mind as we have tried to tackle the problems we have found ourselves in philosophically, religiously, historically, scientifically, economically, psychologically, cosmologically, geologically, and biologically. I love presenting ideas. So there will be times where I appear to be contradicting earlier videos. It is because I am contradicting what I said earlier, simply because I am not, I am more comfortable in sharing ideas rather than gossip about people, even though that's kind of fun to do. <laughs> I'm not going to lie to you, right? So I present ideas. That is my goal in life. That is my mission. That is why I am here on earth. For whatever dingling reason, my brain is hardwired to share knowledge of other fabulous thinkers. Stephen L. Peck is not your typical Mormon scholar. Uh, I've got news for you. His information really does uh, at times, and I mean in this book, and no, this is not a paid advertisement. Steve Peck doesn't know me from Adam, and he's not missing out on anything. Uh, I am not being asked to advertise this book. I'm not making any money advertising this book. I am advertising this book because I have found a fellow human being who is fearless at letting the dominoes fall where they will fall. If religion takes it roughly, then so be it. If science takes it roughly, then so be it. I love his realism. I love his objectivity. I love his subjectivity. I have found someone who very much uh, takes things in life the way I'm taking them intellectually. I like to 
understand and study ideas. That's, hey, Patty Cake, that's what I do. So that's what I'm sharing with you. Dan Vogel, hey, good to see you, my friend. Awesome always to have you here too. John Rosmarski, welcome. Thank you. Debbie Joe, hello, hello. So it looks like we got the gang here. Awesome. Good to see you. Um, let me share with you some of the information uh, about Steve from the forward that helped me buy this book. When I read the forward to it, I said, okay, I can't remember where I, I, I actually did not buy this one online. I lied. Uh, I thought I did buy it online, but I actually read the introduction and that's what convinced me. Okay, I'm going to give this guy a chance and it was well worth it. So Steve Peck is a wondering man. Well, I mean, there's a fellow brother in arms right there, truly. So, and in your hands are the distilled results of years of his wondering. He is brilliant. Well, I'm not so much like that. A knowing man to be sure, well-informed about a lot of things. I would like to someday be remembered as that would be well-informed about a lot of things. That's a nice way to be understood. He reads promiscuously, <laughs> yo, brother. Yeah, we're a brother in arms. And widely, so do I. And not as widely as I'd like, though. Rarely settling on just one field or topic. Boy, that's me. I mean, you know, one week I'm on the historical Jesus. The next week I'm reading the Dead Sea Scrolls. The next week I'm studying science and biological evolution. The next week I'm studying mysticism and uh, Kabbalah. The next week I'm studying uh, atheism. The next week I'm studying chess. The next week I'm studying Alan Watts. You know, it's, it's just crazy how this works. But it all kind of comes out together in the wash. So that is what is happening now. Uh, Amazon pay. Oh, hey, thank you, C Mother of Pearl. Very cool information. Evolving Faith, this book now available on Amazon paperback for $13. I will tell you right here, that is a steal. Seriously, his not his his understanding. What I love about this man is if if in the uh concourse of his knowledge if it disagrees with the brethren he does not shy away from it in deference to uh, an office or an authority uh, he takes it right through so he does not pull punches if it's going to be critical of the church then so be it it's critical of the church it's the church that needs to change not knowledge being suppressed i love that about stephen l peck right that's what i say he, he's kind of like I am in, in many respects, although he's way beyond me. He's, he's fantastic. So he does, he relishes the chance to explore the most far-reaching implications of science. Yes. But he also devours philosophy. Yes. And many other genres of literature. Yes. On campus at Brigham Young University, he is as comfortable with the group of scientists as he is with the group of poets. Cool. I like that. He may very well be the most balanced intellectual between the sciences and the humanities that BYU has ever seen. Well, then they damn well better keep him and they better quit thinking about rehiring new professors from their own idiotic church education system. Go ask Steve Peck who to hire. That would be my advice to the brethren, right? This is the kind of people we need teaching the youth. I don't care if they're Catholic or Mormon or Jewish or atheist. I don't care what kind of youth. 
We need people who love the knowledge, who is willing to propound it. Steve Peck is one of those. So great stuff. Uh, and then he goes through this publication. He said, now, when I first got to uh, know Steve years ago, I was drawn to his smarts. Well, that's how we're different. I don't have any of those, but I'm working on them. Oh, yes, I do. I, I've got them. I just try to be modest. It's a fake modesty, and it's horrible. I knew I could learn a lot from him. Wonderful. So do I, and so can you. He and I decided to team teach a class on religion and the environment, and it was an unforgettable semester. Cool. We had brilliant students. Yes. Steve's mind was a burning fire of ideas. Steve's mind was a burning fire of ideas. Now, the church has said, has come out and said, I, I don't know of any repudiation yet publicly, but they really should, where they've said, well, I mean, you could, hey, you're perfectly free in this church. You can believe anything you want. Just don't talk about it. That's enough to stop tens of thousands of us from ever wanting to go in their buildings again. Wouldn't you agree? I, I mean, what a dumb idea. Well, sure, believe anything you want, but don't talk about it. Well, for the love of Sam Walton, I can take his name in vain. I used to work for him back at uh, Sam's Club years ago, back in the 90s. But more than his impressive knowledge, what stood out to me was his exceptional and exuberant capacity for awe and wonder. Yes, a fellow brother. I don't care what his uh, religion is. In the best sense, Steve Peck is still a child. Excitable. See, I'm boring to death. I, I don't match that at all, do I? No. That's why you all stopped watching me. None of you are really here. This is all just <laughs> fake. So he's excitable. He's incurably curious. Oh, absolutely. Constitutionally humble. Well, two out of three on my part ain't bad. Passionate, yes, three out of four. Earnest, four out of five. Eager, five out of six. Even giddy when he comes upon a new insight, fundamentally so. That's what I've done in this book. That's why I want to do this podcast tonight, because I've run into a new insight that I'm going to share with you tonight. And I am really interested uh, in sharing this. So, he is good company, as you will discover in this collection. I, I second that motion entirely. Absolutely. Because every conversation with Steve feels like you are standing on the precipice of discovery. Marvelous. Absolutely marvelous. The general authorities would do very well to shut their mouths, humble their proud arrogance, and sit at the feet of this man and let him teach them. That would be my advice. If I get a chance... I'm going to do just that. I am doing that through his book. So, however, and this is so important. Oh, my gosh. This is one of the stellar points I want to make in this entire podcast right here, right up front, right now, immediately. Unlike some children, however, he listens. He is willing to change his mind. And he has the maturity to keep the process of inquiry free, fun, and exploratory. That is key to remaining rational. Now, I'm going to argue 
at least I will propose it to you, that is key to remaining spiritual as well. A man who keeps learning, loves the idea of potentially making further cool, interesting discoveries, and yet is willing to change his mind on the basis of new discoveries that even might threaten his very beliefs in religion or in God or in science or in history, etc., that man is worth reading, in my opinion. And, and I know you say, well, yeah, you're just a bloody freaking liberal. Yeah, all right, whatever. You can pigeonhole me any way you want. But the process of love of inquiry, of love of acquiring more knowledge with the idea that I already know that what I know is not necessarily so. So with that in mind, then I know what I come across is going to be potentially damaging to what I think I know right now. And I had better be willing to let go of the old to let the new come in with the provisio that even the new knowledge I am acquiring is still within the context of a finite understanding. And therefore, you never actually end the journey to where you can logically, rationally, or even spiritually say, Oh, well, I know the truth now. And there I would propose is the serious damaging defect of a Mormon testimony, especially when they brainwash it into the youth. Uh, and that's just my observation. And I understand, and, and I agree, there are probably going to be LDS people who watch this who disagree with me and tell me in the comments, I'm just a flipping apostate and the Holy Ghost has left me. You can say whatever you want. It's okay. It's all good. But I also have my view too. And that's my view. Steve Peck uh, is basically on that. I love that description of him, man. He's broad and hungry reading allows him to catch more glimpses of what different fields of knowledge can't see how they might complement each other and what might lie beyond what we presently understand. Right. That's what I'm trying to say. This guy says it so much better than I did. Because of his appetite for learning, you won't find much in the way of definitive dogma in this book. And that is true. And, you know, this book right here, I will read any day before I will read any ensign compilation of Mormon general conferences for that reason alone. Amazing. That's a great description of this book. You won't find definitive dogma. No. Steve is serious about thinking, but he doesn't take himself too seriously. Now, see, in that a lot, in that regard, him and I are exact opposites because I take myself totally seriously. Yeah, baby. Yeah, baby. <laughs> you got to have a little fun in life, you guys. If you can't laugh at yourself and laugh with others and stuff like that, then you're psychologically damaged. So anyway, yeah. Okay, now to be all totally serious. He is a speculator. Okay, yeah, that's good. No, this is good. I am too. 
in the financial sense of the word, which means he's willing to wage his bets on hidden value to take higher risks for higher yield. And my suspicion is this is why the Mormon leadership have tried to dumb down their congregation, so to speak. No offense to any Mormon people. This is on the leaders because they aren't willing to take a higher risk of having really intelligent, inquiring people discussing issues and asking tough questions. No, they want to preach over doctrine and they want you to just shut up and believe it. A man, in my opinion, that is one of the major defects. And, and I agree, that might just be me. You know, I may be the only one in the world who thinks that way. So be it. I don't need a whole group and cadre of people believing like I do to believe what I do. This isn't about popularity and who believes, how many people believe this, and therefore the more people that believe it, it is true. No, none of that has anything to do with it. There is no sense in sitting on what we already know, he seems to say. I love that. That's what I did as an apologist. That is why you see the apologetic endeavors of still the famous Daniel C. Peterson and Lewis Midgley from the Old Farms Guard. That's why you see them continuing to maintain the entirely phony evidence of the Book of Mormon with Nahum and the supposed authentic name of Alma and Nephi and all of that. That's why they are so absolutely unpersuasive, which is too bad. It's not necessary, but see, they're not willing to be like Steve Peck here. That's why Steve Peck has such a much greater draw for interest in actually learning. Yeah, I, I love this. What would be the point of sitting on what we already know? That is a powerful question. There is no point in that because it's still finite. We must, we must come to terms with our finitude, folks. I, I promise I'm not kidding. That is how the best way to approach our lives. Yeah. So that's because for Steve, knowledge is to be invested in questions that we wonder about and things we would like to understand better. He's willing to ask the questions. Some of the questions he asks in here are really, really difficult against science. Some of the questions he asks in this book is almost impossibly difficult against Mormon doctrines, which turn out to be not so solid when it comes to science. But their opinions and their, their attitudes, etc., they're positively horrible. That's why this book, coupled with, coupled, oh, where did it go? Coupled with the other book, yeah, this one, that's why these two books, The Search for Harmony, are so powerful together as a one-two punch. These types of inquiries, 
This type of intellectual exercise of our IQs and not just our obedience enlarges our spirituality even outside of Mormonism or Baptists, Catholics, in other words, organized, quote, church, unquote, religion. There is life. There is faith. There is joy. There is magnificent spirituality outside of religion. And I know there's going to be some Mormons who say, sure, you are so hopelessly lost. And that's all good because I don't give a fig what they think. I am experiencing it, right? Stephen L. Peck, he is not deliberately causing people to question the church as such. That's not his intent. His intent is to say, let's question our knowledge about what we're taught at church because what we're being taught ain't necessarily so. And I like that open approach of his. This is really masterful. Hey, fine business operator. <laughs> what a question. Yeah, good. Newton Lemos, good to see you. Welcome all you guys. Radio Free Mormon. I have prayed you here, BYP. Yes, my prayer is answered. I'm going to the gym now, RFM. I'm going to get bigger guns than you. Yeah, baby. It's going to take me a couple of years, but yeah. Anyway, we'll have our contest later. Woohoo! And then afterward, we'll go out and eat pizza when you beat me. <laughs> uh, what's the fun of friends if you can't go have pizza with them, right? So anyway, the thing I love about this is if nothing else, his practice of creative thinking helps to protect himself. Now, notice this. It, his creative thinking protects himself against staid, stale, or borrowed thinking. He may as well have said Mormon General Conference there, right? We're going to see that next weekend. Is it next weekend General Conference? Yeah, October 1st and 2nd something like that next weekend. Unfortunately, I would like to watch it so that I can make fun videos uh, on it, and I will do so, but I'm going to be up in the mountains enjoying myself making more videos. So you've got some excellent treats coming up from, yes, your favorite, your baby, the BYP, the Backyard Professor. I mean, your second favorite. Radio Free Mormon is your first favorite. I, I get that. I, I, I cannot argue with that impeccable logic. Oh, Elisa, quit. I don't have guns. I'm a, I'm a softy. I'm a marshmallow. Give me one year and I'll surprise you. I'll show you from time to time my progress. I'm not going to show you my belly and my chest. My belly is 10 times bigger than my chest, but I am going to replace my chest. I'm going to put my belly where my chest should be. <laughs> it's going to take me a few years, but I'm going to do it. So anyway, so here's what I love about this. Understanding requires asking questions, teasing out possibilities. Why do you think you keep coming back to listen to me? Why do you think you watch Dan Vogel's videos so often? 
and much and want more. Why do you think Radio Free Mormon and Bill Real and Mormonism Live is so fascinating to watch, but not general conference? And I, I, I'm not trying to say, yeah, we're better than them, but we're better than them as far as that goes. And it doesn't have to be that way, you know. Um, but but this is beautiful because we tease out the possibilities. We're recognizing and we're wondering about what we don't know. Do you really think Mormon leaders do that? Man, they don't wonder about what they don't know. They just say, oh, well, on evolution, the church takes no stands, right? You know, they've constantly screamed neutrality on the most difficult of issues. Now, on the other hand, another part of me says, well, yeah, justifiably so. <laughs> Knowing full well that any solution they propose is going to completely destroy their credibility. But don't you see the problem is in not even taking a stance, it destroys their credibility because of their claim. They are in touch with the creator of it all. All you have to do is ask and it shall be given. Where have they heard that before? Perhaps the Joseph Smith story. Obviously, they don't believe that, though, because the more difficult issues, they always take a neutral. Well, geography of the Book of Mormon? Oh, well, yeah, that's unimportant. You want to see unimportant? Go reread the Doctrine and Covenants, you guys. I am stone-cold serious. Talk about boring, irrelevant, trivial silliness that Joseph Smith was asking Jesus about, and Jesus was providing the answers. And they published it as revelations in the Doctrine and Covenants. Three-fourths of that book is fully useless to us, as far as that goes. So on, on things like science and evolution and geography of the book, I mean, why don't they have the faith to get the answer? Aren't they supposed to be the ones in touch? And yet they say, well, we remain neutral. Jesus is neutral? And now it's causing so many of God's children to quote their version, their word, not mine, apostatize. Oh, well, doesn't God give a fly and flip? Wouldn't he? Heavenly days, man, if you knew your kids were in trouble, would you stay home? swigging on a martini watching television or would you actually make the trip to minneapolis or down at tallahassee florida or boise idaho to help them out depending on where they live or fly across the pond into the uk if your kids live there wouldn't you try to help them out a little bit instead of on a phone say oh well yeah but honey i'm neutral on that position so good luck click I mean, the answer just makes reason stare, doesn't it? <laughs> this man does not remain neutral. That's why I brought that example up. And he doesn't like it that the church does on so many issues. And then they turn around and they really stupidly fumble the football uh, because... <laughs> Uh, they take such a ninny doctrinal stance that is so blatantly and obviously 
farcical, incompetent, and wrong that it positively became for me embarrassing to be an apologist. Well, I did what Steve Peck does. I'm willing to change my mind. And I do have the maturity to keep the process of inquiry free, fun, and exploratory. Oh, heavens, yes. To me, that is the essence of the gospel. Right there. It's not adhering to some idiotic, dogmatic formulation with uh, some old geezer sitting on the toilet with nothing better to think about on how to control people. Right? So this is wonderful stuff. Understanding requires asking questions, not the preordained softball questions in the student manuals at seminary and the church education system and in Sunday school and priesthood meeting, not from the correlation committee who doesn't have any more brains than a pair. No, I mean genuine questions, genuine inquiry. This terrifies literal dogmists. That's why. The church has ended up being the way it is. And now you know the rest of the story. RFM, do you know who I'm quoting? Come on, spit it out, spit it out. You're good. Who's that from? I want to see it in the comments, RFM. Hop on it, pal. Oh, he didn't even stick around. He just came in to say hi. He, Yeah, there you go. Good job, fine business operator. You're giving your age away. <laughs> yeah, baby. So here is the theme with which I love to present to you, my audience. Ever compelling us, the mystery to be grasped by something larger than ourselves, ever compelling us to stretch rather than limit the horizons of our experience. Now, that sentence tells me Mormonism has apostatized because they don't stretch. They do limit. Stay on the covenant path. Only read church-approved literature, etc. Well, what do you think that's all about? Limiting. And we're already finite enough for the love of Sam Walton. I can take his name in vain. I used to be employed by him. He's the founder of Walmart. So only that Mormonism would discover this, right? Yeah, yeah. Knowledge needs us to move around and shift perspective from time to time. Bingo, right there. I love that. That's what all of this stuff does for me. That's why I love sharing it with you, because it shifts our perspective, right? It is is not about being more right than someone else so that you can lord it over them with your dog, your own dogmatics doggerel. No, not at all. Being right and wrong is never the issue. I've got a feeling that when it's all over, we're all going to realize how vastly, superbly wrong we are about absolutely everything we love to imagine that we know. And I mean to the tune of 99.999%, right? Because we're so finite. Uh, look, the universe is, what's the, what's the current age tally now? 13 billion, 14 billion, 18 billion, billion year, 
billion years. We live an average of nowadays, and now we live an average of 70 years. That's not even 1% of 1% of 1% of 1% of 1% of 100 trillion, as far as that goes. That is so minuscule. What we learn in 70 years is next to nothing in all fields of inquiry. So there, dogmatism should never arise. That's my point. Yeah. So anyway, it is fair to wonder why this knowledge doesn't inform our day-to-day -day lives more than it does. That is the knowledge of the world, the knowledge of ourselves, the knowledge of God, if you will, etc. So let me let me uh, get through this. Um, yeah, and now he's talking to Mormons when he says this. And I know some of them, I believe me, I've had this actually said to me. When they are well understood, scientific truths, although not essential to our salvation. See, there's the cop out. Oh, well, that's not essential to your salvation. I don't have to worry about reading any of that noise. Yeah, well, that's irrelevant, right? They are essential for improving life, human and non-human, and for appreciating and protecting the grandeur of the gift of creation. Only a narrow and penurious appetite for truth would dismiss science simply for being secular knowledge. Ouch! To Joseph Fielding Smith, right? Blam, man, he drop kicked his attitude all the way through the goalposts of stupidity and his son-in-law, Bruce Armacocky, with it. Yeah, thank God those days are over. So all truth belongs to Mormonism, was Brigham Young saying, no matter its source. And how about Henry Eyring's suggestion? Now, see, Stephen L. Peck is good to read. Henry Eyring, I liked him too. He was a good scientist uh, because he trounced Joseph Fielding Smith in one of his arguments, but. He was gracious enough to let Smith have the last word, even though under his breath he said he still didn't get it right. We have nothing to fear because in this church you don't have to believe anything that isn't true. And that's why I quit being an apologist, because pretty much damn near all of it isn't true. <laughs> so what am I defending it for? <laughs> right? I mean, wow, when you open your eyes, you realize, holy shish kebab, that, you know. That's astonishing, right? So, yeah, I agree with you, Henry Eyring. I don't have to believe anything in this church that isn't true. I don't even have to go to church either. <laughs> I've got better ways of learning truth than wasting my time listening to the same old trite truisms that in the first place aren't true, and in the second place aren't very convincing, even if they were true. So, it is the aim of the Restoration to make all knowledge sacred. Well, it has failed if that's its aim. And that's all I'll say on that. I'm not here to contend against the Mormons. I'm here to present one very damn good Mormon, Stephen L. Peck. This man I can respect. Dallin Oaks, you want respect? Take lessons from him, will you? Jeff Holland, yo, hey, Dodo. Yeah, you, you need to start paying attention to Stephen L. Peck. You know, you don't want us to think you're a Dodo? Then stop being one and start being more like this guy. That, that would be my humble advice. Humble, yeah, humble. Ah, okay. 
Let me get to a couple of ideas from Stephen L. Peck now. Okay. Hold on. Hold on. I, my throat is saying, yo, hey, take a swig. Okay. This is on page four now. I remember on my mission in Arkansas telling a man we were teaching that he had to quit believing in evolution if he wanted to join the church. I believed this with all my heart. I'd been taught in seminary that evolution and the gospel were completely incompatible. Nothing I'd read in books like Mormon doctrine or heard from my mission president suggested otherwise. When I arrived at BYU as an undergraduate, I was shocked to find that evolution was being taught as one of the most important scientific findings of the last 200 years and that Darwin was being held up as important as Newton and Einstein. My naive views had to undergo some radical reconstruction to accommodate my faith with the scientific truths I was presented with. But in the end, I was thrilled to discover, as Elder Richard G. Scott has explained, that the scientific approach and the revealed truth approach are not opposites, but are rather two mutually reinforcing ways to find truth. I take this seriously, and so do I. I don't buy into that yet, and I take that seriously. However, notice the disconnect that he had because of the dumb bullshit that the church continues to teach the youth, but then it lets BYU teach what they're railing against in their brainwashing the youth because they want BYU to be accreditation institution. So they have no choice. But make no mistake about it, if they could, they would not teach evolution. But they do. Notice the two-faced hypocritical stance of the Mormon church leaders, because we know there's either six or seven of the apostles who actually are on the board of directors of BYU. In other words, they run the program. They know they have to let science teach its evidences. And yet, in seminary, I too was taught the same thing this gentleman was. And it's bullshit. It's brainwash. Bullshit. But they haven't changed that. Now, why would they be doing something so phony? Well, you tell me. You know? I don't know. Obviously, they don't have faith in the Holy Ghost to testify to the truth of things because they have to lie like hell, right? Once you figure that out, once you find that out, there's my shock. Yeah, that helped me to step away and look back a little harder and say, you know what, I, I, that is just not ethical, right? Yeah, the Lord's church, not ethical. Who would have thunk it? <laughs> on page seven, 
Questioning is an important element of lifelong religious faith, as Dieter F. Utzdorf, a member of the LDS Church's first presidency, explained. Now, he wrote this in 2015, so this was when Utzdorf was in the first presidency. Brothers and sisters, as good as our previous experience may be, if we stop asking questions, stop thinking, stop pondering, we can thwart the revelations of the Spirit. Remember, it was the questions young Joseph asked that opened the door for the restoration of all things. We can block the growth and knowledge our Heavenly Father intends for us. How often has the Holy Spirit tried to tell us something we needed to know, but couldn't get past the massive iron gate of what we thought we already knew? To which I say, oh, Come on. <laughs> really? Do you really think that the Holy Ghost being so weak is inspiring to us now? You mean the Holy Ghost, who has every attribute of God except presumably a human body, a physical body. Is he really so damn powerless that he can't get the knowledge to us anyway? Oh, come on. This is what I mean by brainwash, pap and pablum, right? Truly. So that's another idea that I wanted to share. Now, let's zippity-doo-dah over to page 12 and 13. Science's upfront and non-negotiable stance is known as methodological materialism. This means that science generally assumes that there are no hidden forces affecting the processes being investigated. Scientific descriptions posit no influence from God, angels, or demons, no magic. Whoops, Joseph Smith. No, that's me, not him. <laughs> no miracles. Whoops, Jesus. No, that's me, not him. This does not mean that scientists cannot or do not believe in God or miracles. That's true. It also does not mean that science claims that nothing that does not fit its materialist claims is worth knowing. No, science does not even claim that it will reveal all truth. In fact, they, it really cannot get much purchase on lots of things we make value claims about, including art, ethics, religion, and so on. Science does not even claim to get at the ultimate root of things, this despite misguided attempts by people like Richard Dawkins, who claim it can discover all truth, which is also just as silly as some of the Mormon leaders' pronunciation that it's all just the philosophy of men mingled with Scripture and therefore of no value. So we have two extreme pendulum swings that way. So in short, science is not a perfect method that speaks to all truths of every conceivable kind. Now, that being said, and I completely agree with him, when you begin to study the epistemology of science, you'll get that. But now let's hold on. Let's take a look. That's where the brethren stop, right? This is where they cheat us, so to speak. And unfortunately, they've trained us to be naive enough to continue believing what they say, and I no longer do. Now I test their words far harder than I test Richard Dawkins, right? And I have dozens and dozens and dozens of science books up there testing Richard Hawkins, Dawkins, 
but then I've got thousands of books testing the Mormon leaders. So it's all good. <laughs> okay. No, but now, now let's get to the reality here. Let's not stop short like the leaders do. Some people seem to be afraid of methodological materialism, pretty much all of the Mormon hierarchy. But you shouldn't be. After all, you are already very familiar with it. So what do you mean? Methodological materialism is what you expect from your car mechanic who naturally assumes that whatever is causing the clunking noise in your DeSoto is a mechanical problem with a particular material cause requiring a particular fake fix based purely on the physical realities about the ways that cars are put together. If your mechanic had said, oh, get this, he, he misunderstands the irony here. This is so incredible. Bless his heart. <laughs> okay. If your mechanic says to you, it looks like a malicious fairies have given your engine a curse that causes dark fluctuals from the ethereal world of Candunianus. You would likely get a new mechanic, would you not? But let's keep going here. I'm not saying that there definitely cannot be a curse from said fairies, but you know that's not the way you bet. And you expect, based on your experience with the world, based on your experience with the world, here's what we expect from our car mechanic, that the best way to approach car repair is from the perspective of methodological materialism. Your assumption about mechanics is science's best move, too, for exactly the same sorts of reasons. Now, your mechanic may be an atheist, a Buddhist, or a Mormon, but any such status is irrelevant regarding expertise in repairing your car. The mechanic assumes it's a mechanical problem. And he moves on from there regardless of any spiritual commitments he or she might have. So to sum up thus far, and this should be strongly emphasized, methodological materialism is not a threat to spirituality or belief in the existence of God. Methodological materialism is a good scientific assumption for confronting the physical world. And yet we do have, and this is my note when I read this book, as an atheist, and yet my view hasn't changed, even though I'm no longer an atheist. The prophet said an angel came through the roof in a slash of light three times in one night, eventually giving him gold plates in an unknown language, and only a stone using glowing letters could translate the reformed Egyptian. How is that any different from the bad fairy putting a curse on the car engine? Remember, we are supposed to be basing this on our experiences with the world. And yet Joseph Smith gives us the same 
unnatural explanation of which our very own Dan Vogel here in the audience tonight has written myriads about, and there's plenty of videos of which our own radio free Mormon who is here in the audience tonight has done the same thing of which your own backyard professor has also talked about a little bit, not as extensively. What he is saying is the anti-intellectual, the anti-scientific approach that Mormon leaders have fallen under the spell of needs to disappear out of the church. Scientific materialism, methodological naturalism is not going away anytime soon. So get over it. The philosophies of men mingled with Scripture? No. You don't get to dismiss it with an entirely phony bullshit label anymore. It's time the Mormon leadership mature in their intellects. My advice, 12 apostles in the first presidency, start taking classes from Stephen L. Peck. He'll learn you properly because you've been misguiding us for far damn too long. And we're mad as hell, and we're not going to take it anymore. What movie is that from? Does anyone know? Come on, RFM, you're here. Come on. Who said that in the movie? Okay, so on page 17, now this is really important too. I'm mad as hell, and I'm not going to take it anymore. That was a very famous uh clip in the movie. You remember who it was? Network. <laughs> you guys are good. See, don't tell me RFM doesn't rub off on me. Holy shish kebab. I love that man. Don't tell him I said that. He'll swell his fat head, but I love all of you. Just don't let that swell your fat heads. So on page 17 now, literalism. So what is this? Well, this is a way of interpreting scripture that runs the risk of Man, listen, stop talking in the chat. Listen, I'm going to tell you one of the most important points of this video. So stop talking and listen. How's that for dogma? How's that for command and control? I'm about to brainwash you. Literalism, a way of interpreting scripture that runs the risk of robbing the scriptures of their intended effect. Wow, that is seriously important. I think reading certain scriptures in an overly literal fashion can impede our access to the depth that the scriptures actually offer, and I entirely agree. I don't think the scriptures exist to give us information. Excuse me, I'm hiccuping. I don't think the scriptures exist to give us information about the scientific nature of the universe, not even close. While there are elements of this, which is fine, we can be rewarded by thinking about the historical contexts for the emergence of scriptures in the world. In other words, learn the background of the scriptures and, and don't do it from the church leaders because they don't know themselves. They think Moses really wrote Genesis through uh, Deuteronomy, for instance. Wow. They believe in literal flood of night. Holy nightmare. You know, stuff like that. 
while there are elements of, oh yeah, I've read that. The purpose of scripture is to connect us to deeper, more important realities than literal historical. I, I cannot disagree with that. Fundamentally so. About what science can offer no insight whatsoever, which I also agree with. It may be that I personally have a more mystical bent. So do I, Stephen Peck. So do I. It's all good. But to me, I've never looked at the scriptures as a history book or a manual of scientific practice. Well, you're lucky. You didn't pay enough attention in seminary then. Unfortunately, I did, and I believed it was literal history. The scriptures facilitate contemplation of the more profound aspects of the universe, enabling us to experience the influence of the Spirit of God. Yeah, maybe, maybe not. You know, he is writing for Mormons, you know. He's got to kind of Mormonize it in a way to get the youth to keep reading this because he really is doing a fantastic job for science and a fantastic job for trying to understand the scriptures in a more realistic bent. For that, I can do nothing but applaud the man. Opening grander and more prescient truths about the meaning of existence and our place in the universe. I would also advise Vedanta uh, Hinduism, Buddhism is also helpful. These truths have little to do with the mechanical workings of the universe. They relate only to the spiritual realities that open us to a relationship with God and his other children on a higher level than the surface realities obtained by objectively inclined science. All right, that's the objective here. Okay, I, I'm, I'm okay with that. This is why reading the scriptures as a scientific text can do violence to their purpose. The Scousens should have understood this. I mean, even Nibley was a dingling apologist argument against evolution. It was one of the most farcical, ridiculous things he ever published. Actually, he didn't publish it. It was in notes, but he kept handing them out to his students. Utterly stupid. They are designed to connect us subjectively, consciously, and spiritually to richer truths and meaning. Okay, I, I can go with that. The tools of science described above can hardly be brought to bear on these ancient texts uh, in the way he's setting it out, yes, but in another way, no, he's completely wrong. Science absolutely has a say on the historicity of the Bible. There's no question about that. The archaeology, the, the linguistic aspects, the, the textual criticism, the form criticism. Yeah, so, you know, okay, he's leaning toward the Mormon side. It's all good. It's all good. I, I'm not going to tweak him on that. So literalism is, oh, this is the statement in the book as far as I'm concerned. Every Mormon needs to understand this. So when they start telling you, you've apostatized and you are no longer taking the scriptures literal, quote this quote to them. Stephen Peck, Evolving Faith, a Mormon biologist, faithful temple-going Mormon. Literalism is like giving a child a calculus book as a step stool to reach a wash basin. In so doing, much is lost that lies with the proper use of the book. Now, certainly, children need step stools, but that particular use misses the true potential that that calculus book has to offer.
Wow, what a fantastic idea. Man, that's awesome. I like that a lot. Come on, give me a like if you haven't. That's worth a like on that like button. Give it to me. I'm telling you, that quote's gold. So, using the scriptures as a scientific guidebook does harm to science. Such use misrepresents how truths about the world are best discovered and clarified. Yeah, I can't argue with that at all. Okay, now, uh, and this, how long have I gone? Oh, I'm one hour into this. Okay, yeah, we're in good shape. We are in good shape. Okay, it looks like uh, you guys are having a good discussion. Thank goodness. Woohoo! Okay, now, here comes the subject to which I understand if there are disagreements with. It's perfectly okay. I've got about five pages here I'm going to read to you, and I'm going to try to get through it, and I'll wrap this up when I get done with this. This is on the subject of subjective truths. A very itchy subject, right? Kierkegaard chides speculative philosophers such as Hegel because their theories and systems are not grounded in a subjective matter or a, a subjective matrix, I apologize. So if a dancer could leap very high, we would admire him. But if he tried to give the impression that he could fly, let laughter single him out for suitable punishment. Even though it might be true that he could leap as high as any dancer ever had done, leaping is the accomplishment of a being essentially earthly, one who respects the Earth's gravitational force since the leaping is only momentary. But flying carries a suggestion of being emancipated from telluric conditions, a privilege reserved for winged creatures, and perhaps also shared by the inhabitants of the moon. And there, perhaps, the system will first find its true readers. So, we might so accuse hardline materialists who similarly suggest that there is no consciousness and that it is an illusion. Well, the question is, whose illusion if no one's there? Good question. My subjective consciousness is my only reality. Kierkegaard posited that objective scientific or historical certainty can only be approximated Oh, would that the Mormon leaders would come around to grasping that, even in testimony. Seriously. It might get closer and closer to a presupposed objective reality, but there would always be incomplete facts, impossible observations, and other omissions that would prohibit a complete description of the phenomenon. Therefore, our subjective grasp of certainty could never reach beyond approximation. Would that Mormonism would teach this instead of trying to brainwash us into a 
false certainty that they label as testimony. That is what is driving people out these days. And apparently they just can't grasp that, right? It's too bad. It's their loss. It is their loss. Make no mistake about it. Kierkegaard points out that certainty is an illusion as long as it is based on observations or knowledge outside the one subjective truth that we can be certain about our own existence. To Kierkegaard, this was the only truth that mattered, hence the title of the section of the concluding unscientific postscript, Subjectivity is Truth. He goes on to define truth. Now, before you bat Kierkegaard on the ears, let's hear what he says about truth. An objective uncertainty held fast in an appropriation process of the most passionate inwardness is the truth. Truth is not something floating out there in the universe. Truth is a condition of existence that can be appropriated only within the subjective capabilities of the individual. Now, that's interesting. Let me keep going here. This idea, and again, that's what I do as the backyard professor. I am sharing wonderful ideas with you. I'm not sharing them because I agree with them or because I disagree with them. I'm simply sharing them and talking about them. This idea that all of our knowledge really derives from personal subjectivity is developed by B. Allen Wallace. When encountering a scientist's findings, even if we are scientists, most of us don't know that her empirical data are sound. Rather, we tend to take them on faith. Otherwise, the only way to know that they are sound is to create a comparable laboratory of our own. We can't use hers, or if the data can be replicated only in hers and in no other laboratory, they are suspect. Yeah. Replicate the experiment and see whether our findings corroborate hers. Likewise, we don't know that the mathematical analysis of her data is sound unless we apply our own analysis and thereby confirm her results. Likewise, we don't know that her theoretical interpretation of the quantitative results is sound unless we apply our own knowledge of the theory to corroborate hers. In other words, her findings which on the surface seem to be public and third person are known by us to be valid if and only if we pursue the same research ourselves. That is, all third person or collaborative research really consists of multiple first persons doing their own research and trusting the work of their collaborators. So the point of all of this is quite profound. Faith is not merely an attribute of religious praxis. It is a necessary ingredient for moving science forward. 
we trust that the assumptions, the experiments, the analyses, and the conclusions of our colleagues are accurate and are done in the same way that we would do them if we were the ones doing the experiments. Now, this process describes Karl Popper's World 3, the accumulation of knowledge represented by the papers and the books and the other forms of discourse done according to appropriate procedure dictated by the scientific method. Faith, then, is an element of all subjective acquisition of knowledge to Kierkegaard. Faith and truth are inseparable. The truth is precisely the venture which chooses an objective uncertainty with the passion of the infinite. I contemplate the order of nature in the hope of finding God, and I see omnipotence and wisdom, but I also see much else that disturbs my mind and excites anxiety. The sum of all this is an objective uncertainty. But it is for this very reason that the inwardness becomes as intense as it is, for it embraces this objective uncertainty with the entire passion of the infinite. In the case of a mathematical proposition, the objectivity is given. But for this reason, the truth of such a proposition is also an indifferent truth. But the above definition of truth is an equivalent expression for faith. Without risk, there is no faith. Faith is precisely the contradiction between the infinite passion of the individual's inwardness and the objective uncertainty. For a philosopher, Kierkegaard really gave us quite a wallop there, didn't he? Yeah, and I lost half my audience because you heard me talking about faith. <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs> so here is expressed Kierkegaard's, Kierkegaard's famous leap. Faith begins with a recognition that there exists uncertainty of any knowledge. There's no question about that except mathematical, which has no existential value, according to Kierkegaard, which is a remarkably interesting uh, stance to take. I, I don't think I'd follow him there. <laughs> oh, so there exists uncertainty of any knowledge. Deciding that something is true always involves a certain level of uncertainty. Now, you know, Mormonism doesn't have a clue about any of this, does it? I know the church is true, says the little three-year-old bearing her testimony in sacrament meeting, which is so blatantly just hokey that they should be positively embarrassed that they brainwash their kids that way into that phony certainty, right? But they keep doing it. So that's very interesting. This is where scientific materialism actually fails, however. This is remarkable. By denying a subjective component to the appropriation of truth, and by not recognizing the role of faith in the appropriation of truth, the materialist outlook is philosophically flawed. 
And this is reminiscent of Kierkegaard's dancers described earlier. The assumptions, as summarized by Wallace, are that the physical world is the only reality. Uh, the second thing is the universe originates wholly from impersonal natural forces. It is devoid of any intrinsic moral order or values. Well, these assumptions are all accepted without question or reflection when in fact there exists no empirical observations that support or verify these very assertions. And that's quite remarkable. That's very interesting, isn't it? Because materialists are blind to the form of dogmatism that they have embraced, they are left denying the most fundamental existential truth that we can appropriate, our own subjectivity. In other words, science, in disregarding the subjective, the qualia, and going only with the quantitative, the objective, they are subjectively elevating the objective above the subjective, and therefore they're wrong. Because only trying to be objective is itself subjective. And it is our subjectivity that we can appropriate. Isn't that fascinating? <laughs> I love crap like this, you know. Question them all. Let God sort them out. So what are the nature of subjective truths? Now here, here is where we get radical in our departures. And, and this is where I'll lose the other half of my audience, I'm more than sure. <laughs> but let's hear him out. Here's his idea. So I do not mean to suggest that there is no difference between objective and subjective truths. Uh, good, because there really is a difference. And it's gigantic, right? So objective truths, that is, the kind of truths that we seek through the scientific method are those that we suppose would be discovered by anyone using the same instruments or the same methods or using the same analysis that we have used. That is what we term objective. Okay, fair enough. That's good. That's well stated. Well, in doing science, then, we detail what we did to perform the experiment. In essence, what we do is we give a recipe for what we hope guides everyone else in a repeatable sequence of actions that lead to the same data that we got. Okay. That's good. I'm with you there. These are what we call objective truths. Okay, despite, as I pointed out, their ultimate subjective nature. <laughs> Crazy, isn't it? These are truths that we hope map an objective reality, one that would exist whether we were here or not. Okay, that I'm, I'm with him. Okay, I get it. That's good. I like that. However, nevertheless, are there purely subjective truths available only to the individual? And we all know that that answer is, of course, truly. This is remarkable when you just slow down a little bit. 
and think about it. <laughs> My experience of subjectivity is absolutely for forever unavailable to anyone else on the planet or throughout the cosmos. That should be obvious, right? And yet, that's not fake. That's real to you. Isn't that remarkable? So let's keep going here. The fundamental me that experiences life's rich qualities, the qualia, the person framed by my quantitative mental states, my mental states, the combination and processes that combine to make up that entity is absolutely unique, and it's individually mine. That's what each of us can say individually, right here, right now. This applies to each one of us as individuals. So there at least is a subjective truth that is singularly available to just me and no one else. <laughs> That's fun, isn't it? So if there is one such truth, are there others? A great question. Are there subjective truths that have no counterpart in the objective world, but may be a part of a world hidden from the objective world? What would be the nature of such subjective truths? One point must be made here. This is really important. The subjective truths I'm looking for are universal truths available only subjectively, not some sort of personal truth or something that is true just for me, just for me, but not for anyone else. Rather, universal truths that explore a universe hidden from the measurable universe with which science seeks to grapple. And here is where the mystics tend to go toward, right? So he's asking about this particular precept here. So Peck says, my faith in God is what I believe to be one such subjective universal truth. Of course he does. Yeah, he's a religious man. It's, it's all good. It's no big deal. I don't know if I quite look at it that way, but yeah, I see why he does. When I pray, when I am reading and pondering the scriptures, I feel God's presence subjectively. Okay, now this is interesting because when I'm reading some of my philosophy books and my science books and even my chess and all that, I actually feel that too. So I'm with him. I get it. But it doesn't happen just with the religious subject. And I find that quite frankly remarkable. Yes, there is an inward excitement and an elevating of what I can only subjectively term spirituality. No, I can't explain it. I can't define it with words, but man, do I experience it. It is what gives me personally, the backyard professor, my enthusiasm 
not only for just sharing what I know, which is precious too little, but learning more so that I can continue to share because of this remarkable connection between you, my wonderful audience, and me, the, the backyard professor, in sharing the ideas. Not because we have to come into an agreement. No, that doesn't even become an issue here. That's not the point, right? And yet we are subjectively receiving the information, me from my books, and then me sharing it with you, you all are subjectively receiving the information differently than everyone else. That's fantastically interesting to me personally. So, so I like his, I like where he's taken this. So how I experience and interact with this subjective experience is ineffable personal, and real. And we all know that to be true in here, right? No, I can't defend it. <laughs> no, I can't put a math formula to it. No, I can't present it in a chemical manner. But that's irrelevant. Yeah, this is interesting how he's putting this. So, and, and then he uses a very famous example, which has been used by several other philosophers. But really, it's true. Uh, just as when I experienced the color red while looking at the fire hydrant outside my window, my subjective experience with God is vibrant and undeniable within the context of my mind when it is experienced. And he uses this color red and all. My wife and I still to this day, and we've been together for 35 years, we still argue over is something red or orange. And, and there, we, we just simply do not perceive it the same, in the same depth, the same uh, magnitude or what, whatever you want to call it, right? It's, it's very interesting. This subjective experience convinces me there is a God well, okay, hey, it's his experience. So, yeah, I, 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 at this point in my life and my experience and adventure, I, I don't know what to make of that. And yet it's going to have to be a subjective experience if you're going to come to know God. So I get it, right? Yeah, yeah. I'm giving my lack of testimony away, aren't I? And that's okay. He's got it. I don't. I can live with that. It's all good. Well, now, this does not mean that I am unaware that my mind might be sending me signals generated from within my brain alone. Uh, that's a distinct possibility for sure. But just as I reject Berkeley's idealism because the preponderance of evidence seems to me to support an independent objective world, and I'm with him on that, I, I do believe the world is real. I do not accept Descartes' split of reality into the objective, the quantitative, and the subjective, the qualities the love, the colors, etc. No, I think that is, that's the mistake that's been hoisted on science. And, and I do not object Descartes' split. 
My subjective experience with God suggests that something outside myself is causing the perception of relationship with God. Okay, that's interesting. I, I, I kind of get where he's coming from. Okay. I do recognize the possibility that these feelings and sensations could be nothing more than an evolved strategy for coping with a big brain. And perhaps this is necessary for the higher level of cognitive power human beings enjoy. Notice his realism. I, I like this. I can't help it. So he's aware that, hey, the brain can play tricks on us. Fundamentally so. Yeah, for Pete's sake, we all know that now. But the brain can also give us real subjective truth as well. So I find it harder to believe that God is not there than that God exists. Martin Gardner, that's why I did uh, that particular selection out of Gardner's The Wise of a Philosophical Scribner, why I am not an atheist, that's one of my videos. He's saying the same thing what uh, Martin Gardner did. Very interesting here. So still, how do we weigh the subjective experience? See, this is the trick. This is the whole kip and caboodle right here. Uh, how do we put, how do we assess uh, the value in regards to truth and reality when it comes to the subjective as opposed to the objective. Well, let's take a look at how he explains this. I really like how he does this. So is there a science of subjectivity? So he thinks there is. He says so. I remember hearing of an interview with an atheist scientist. And uh, um, wow, this is so long, though. Oh, no, it's not. I'm going to go ahead and do this. Uh, the atheist scientist whose name he couldn't remember and he confesses was Bertrand Russell. His analysis of this is very, very interesting. Okay, so uh, this scientist, it was Bertrand Russell, who claimed that you might as well believe that there is a teapot circling the planet Pluto as believe that there is a God interacting with the affairs of the universe. Both of these are outside of science's ability to detect. One can posit any such non-evidential nonsense, but clearly the burden of proof lies with the proposer, and thus far there has been very little evidence to support the God hypothesis. Perhaps. What I love about Peck is he takes a look at it anyway. So let's take a look at it anyway. I like I I can't help. I like this guy, man. He explores, man. There it is. He explores. I love that. So the teapot analogy of Bertrand Russell shows some of the problems of getting behind subjective truths. That is, assuming they exist. For example, what if the teapot speaks to me? Whoa. <laughs> Let's take a look at this. What if the teapot, what if the teapot speaks to me? Hell, that would terrify me to death. <laughs> right? Okay, but let's see what he says. <laughs> of course, such a claim would be taken as nothing more than madness. Uh, you got that right. But if I offer a formula by which anyone can speak to the teapot, do the following, stand on your head, blink three times and say, diddy, diddy, da, da. And when people follow my recipe, the teapot speaks to them 
then there is some supporting evidence for what? Only one thing. I am not alone in my madness. Oh, man, I love that. Okay, let's keep going. See how he does this. I love how Peck analyzes this, man. He just stays real, right? I love it. I love it. I love it. Okay, so I am not alone in my madness. So, okay, so myriad things could be going on. For instance, a teapot that circles Pluto that actually talks to people or a repeatable brain malfunction caused by too much blood rushing to the head of an upside-down person chanting nonsense, <laughs> or a maniacal government experiment located in a deep silo in northern Colorado that monitors brainwave activity and sends messages that the brain can pick up when it detects the formula being followed. Whoa. <laughs> but notice something here. The second and third options are at least susceptible to scientific tests. But the hypothesis about the teapot itself is again untestable. I wonder if Bertrand actually understood that. That might be interesting to explore, huh? Well, suppose then that our exhaustive search for alternative explanations fall short. At what point do we begin to accept the hypothesis that there is a talking teapot? <laughs> I know, I'm saying never, of course. Well, let's look what he says. All right, let's give him a chance to express his thinking through this. I love how he expresses how he thinks through it. This is glorious. See, this is what Mormonism is missing. In church, in church, right? So as the number of people now we're talking about, what if we begin to accept that hypothesis of a talking teapot? Uh-oh. Well, as the number of people who try the subjective experiment continues to grow, and all of those people who are trying the experiment, standing on their head, chanting nonsense, etc., and then claiming the teapot is talking to them, they all agree that when you follow the recipe, the teapot is speaking to you, can you ever accept that there is a talking teapot? Do we apply Sherlock Holmes' famous dictum, when you have eliminated the impossible, whatever remains must be the truth, no matter how improbable, and assume that there is indeed a talking teapot? See, here's what it comes down to. It seems that no matter how many people subjectively experience a talking teapot, without additional warrant, we cannot accept that a talking teapot orbits Pluto because it does not fit with what we know about the rest of the universe. I love how he has explained all of this out. This is good stuff here. We need something else. We need that warrant. The only place we have seen consciousness before is a complex biological beings. Teapots are not complex enough to be talking with us. 
Therefore, despite the number of reported cases of a talking teapot, we do not accept that as true. We cannot. Now, it makes no sense in light of the other facts that we know about the universe. Suppose the teapot itself supplies that warrant. Wow, man. Now, come on, fess up. I, I would have never thought of this. But look how he explores this. I love this, man. So what if the teapot itself supplies the warrant? Now what? Woohoo! Does that change things? <laughs> Suppose it tells those receiving the messages that it was once an ordinary teapot until one day a group of aliens abducted it from Earth and filled it with advanced neurotechnology that gave it sentience. Then they equipped it with a transmitter of a new and unknown technology allowing it to communicate with biological brains. And they said it circling Pluto. All right. Now, look, while still far-fetched, this does seem to place the claim of a teapot communicating to earthling brains in the realm of objects and processes that could conceivably exist in the universe now, doesn't it? Whoa. See how he's doing this with us. I love this. So a subjective truth then has to fit into what we have learned about the objective nature of the universe. Subjective truths should not contradict objective truths. Still, if there are subjective truths, then they lie completely outside the scientific method. And yet again, the fact that consciousness exists demonstrates that there is at least one subjective truth that seems irrefutable. Our own consciousness. Well, that, at least for each individual, is undeniable, except for those hardline materialists who have managed to deny its existence. I suspect he's got Daniel Dennett in mind, perhaps, or Sam Harris or whoever. I mean, Sam is still ding-a-lingingly claiming we have no free will, and that's just hilariously idiotic. I choose my free will not to believe that I don't have free will. Interesting, isn't it? Anyway. Yeah, I know. There's going to be some of you who really lambast me in the comments. Lambast away. I'll, I'll discuss it with you. So our own consciousness, that at least for each individual is undeniable and yet ever unavailable to the thousands of other individual consciousnesses that surround our consciousness. What I experience as my relationship with God is ever outside your preview. Come on, hand it to him. He's got a point, right? You can never know what I feel as a conscious being. Well, you may check my brain states while I claim to be experiencing God. You may correlate behavioral responses to my claims of experiences with God. That's true. Notice how he acknowledges 
all the views. Yet the qualia, the qualia of God, not the numerical measurement, not the quantitative, but the quality of God are experienced only at the subjective level. And I'll be go to hell if he doesn't have a magnificent point there. From su subjective experiences, prayer doesn't work much for me. Feeling after God and letting God guide my life, that, that also doesn't really, you know. Hey, it's his point. Let him make it, right? I have gathered subjective evidence that God is there and individually interested in me. Well, good. He's actually been through some horrific issues in life that would have caused me to doubt that. So I must confess, his faith is vastly superior to mine at this juncture. I'm, I'm willing to admit that. Uh, his whole story, his book is, wow, yeah. His horrible car accident and him going insane and then coming back and learning about how brains work. And it's utterly, fantastically interesting. Really, truly, it's fantastic. His human experience is definitely not mine or probably not the majority of yours for sure. So while it is impossible for you to experience the things that contribute to my belief, try to describe using words the taste of a lemon to someone who's never experienced something sour. See, I can recommend the process to you and see if you come to the same conclusion. All right, cool. So faith is not a matter of belief despite evidence or lack of evidence. Even though that is the scriptural definition, I get it. I understand that. Faith is the subjective experiment of coming to find non-scientifically available subjective truths. That's kind of interesting. I will compare that with Martin Gardner's definition of faith. That's kind of interesting, isn't it? So just as we suspect that others have consciousness despite the complete lack of any objective measure, uh, we may assume that subjective truths are universal but can be appropriated only by the individual. So objectively, they are invisible like other people's individual consciousness. And, you know, I, I just... Oh, and here's his conclusion, just a brief paragraph, and then I'll wrap it up. I am not convinced that materialists hold the intellectual high ground in their dismissal of religion. Okay, I have found great value in the methods of science in exploring the visible universe. Once we move beyond my belief in God and the materialist's rejection of that, we find that our practice of science is the same. We publish in the same journals. We speak at the same conferences. We all read the same books. In the realm of the subjective experience of the universe, however, we disagree profoundly. Quite a, quite a, quite a comment. So I've introduced you to Stephen L. Peck, Evolving Faith. I will strongly encourage you to read his book. Very excellent book. So uh, before I close out, you want me to say hi to you all real quick? Hold on. i got to get a drink. Fun stuff, exploring others' ideas. Oh. Okay. Oh, um, yeah. Oh, man. I, oh, well, thank you, Debbie Joe. That's very kind of you. Um, I, I have something that I've got to attend to. <laughs> I, so, um, yes, I will drink as I will, but this is not ever clear. It's just pure water. So, Dad Gummit, I am going to have to close this out tonight. 
Thank you so much for coming. Uh, I, I appreciate all your attendance. I appreciate your encouragements. I love the fact that we all get along so well and that we can have such fun chat gatherings and get to know each other better and all. Uh, I appreciate the fact that perhaps I might have something good to offer, good enough that you keep coming back and telling your friends and family about it. I do keep seeing new faces, and that's really kind of cool uh, because I'd like everybody uh, to enjoy themselves when they're associating with me. I hope, I hope. Uh, yes, Dan Vogel, thank you. I will see you next week. I will see you all next week. Uh, I'm going to head out. I do have new uh, backyardprofessor.org podcasts that will be available. I thought I'd get them today. I'm not going to, I don't think. Maybe I can get one of them, but they will be up this week and I will keep producing more materials for you as I find more philosophy and ideas, the relationships of science and religion, faith and doubt, skepticism, knowledge, evidence, whatever. The epistemology I like best is keep going. <laughs> Don't rest on what we think we know. There's more to learn. So that's why I keep buying new books, right? Okay, you guys, you have a fantastic evening. I love y'all. I'm going to head out now. I will see you uh, potentially before next Sunday morning, 10 a.m. Uh, I will probably do a, a couple of surprise lives. I apologize for that. I don't mean to make them a surprise. It's just that when I get a hankering, I jump on here on a live because it automatically records it as a video and you can always watch the video. I love it when you can catch me on the live sessions. Sometimes I try to do them in the mornings so that people on the other side of the world can catch my live sessions. That's kind of fun for them. So I try to do that too. So, okay. Thank you so much. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Radio Free Mormon. You're a hot shot. I have redirected all clicks on BYP to RFM. Yes. Oh, my goodness. I have been usurped with RFM authority. <laughs> Shall I salute? Everybody salute to RFM. I love you guys. You're awesome, man. I got to go. All right. See you later. <laughs>